Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions in our podcast can be difficult to listen to, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends or a counselor if you have one or a hotline, whatever source you need. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Knife Foundation website, and we'll give you that address at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Claire, and welcome to our podcast, Sean Shutt. Uh, we are so excited to host you, and you know your perspective is one we really haven't delved into. So for the sake of our listeners, could you tell us all a little bit about your background and bio? Yeah. So- Hey, y'all. I'm Sean Shutt. I am the Prevention Education Coordinator for a Domestic and Sexual Violence Shelter in Michigan. So in that role, I work in my community to try and prevent domestic and sexual violence. Uh, Part of that looks like me going into schools, doing presentations with kids about consent and healthy relationships, going out into bars and educating bar staff on how they can recognize signs of harassment and try to stop those things from taking place there, as well as potentially meeting with different like law enforcement, meeting with politicians, kind of just like helping them understand what prevention actually really looks like. Um, I have a master's degree in public health, which is kind of where I get a lot of my foundations for what my presentations often look like. Um, Because with public health, if I'm preventing one form of violence, I'm preventing all forms of violence. And if I'm doing things that people might not necessarily think of as violence prevention, it's still helping because that is all connected. And then I also have a podcast called Touchy Subjects Podcast that my co-host and I have been running for now just a little bit over two years. So, Thank you so much, Sean. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast uh, for Dear Katie. So, you know, I think one thing that's just struck me with your uh, background is this work in public health and the unique perspective it it must bring in your violence prevention work. Can you go into a little bit of the perspective that you utilize and and how you go about affecting change? Yeah, so often when people think about public health, they're thinking about their health departments where people are going to kind of get like maybe their COVID vaccines, maybe they're going to get just um, birth aids, um, things like that. But public health can really fit into any kind of field. So my background with public health is I tend to focus a lot on the social determinants of health or how social factors impact a community's overall health outcomes. So in terms of violence prevention, I have to look at my communities and figure out which social factors are currently present in those communities to then work on addressing these social factors or how people view these social factors so that way we can try to prevent violence. Um, and an easy example that I try to use for this one is if somebody has a specific viewpoint around somebody of the LGBTQ plus community, if they view them as negatively or poorly, that person is at a greater risk in that community for violence. So if I can address that belief system that person may have around some, a member of that community, I can help lower the rates of violence in the community against them, which then also inherently lowers the rates of domestic and sexual violence. That sounds amazing and really critical. And I, you know, when we think about biases, I think all of us do much better when we, you know, own our own biases as we go into work with any community. I know in, you know, my 30 years of traipsing about the world, um, you know, making entrees into lots of places where I could never have imagined going without 
you know, an invitation to share my story. The trepidation I always have is how will I connect and how will my story relate? And how am I seeing the room of people, you know, myriad and diverse as they might be? I'll, you know, I think it's hard when you have to also work within one community where you are with all the diverse constituents. I can only imagine, you know, you have synagogues, you have churches, you have, you know, wealthy areas, poor areas. So how do you um, build bridges or, you know, do your work in those disparate environments? Mm -hmm. So one of the first things that I had to do before I was even actually able to fully do this work effectively is really recognize what biases I have and face those biases. No one likes looking in the mirror and saying, hey, you have this, you view these people as different or as negative, and you need to fix that. No one wants to admit they've done harm. It's a really hard thing to do. But it's once you can recognize the biases you may have, it makes doing this work a lot easier because then you're able to make those connections that you might not have thought you've been able to make prior. My biggest example of this is I have a colleague who I work very closely with um, who is a pastor. And I know for myself, I have a very strong bias against religious organizations. So if I was not able to overcome that bias, I would not be able to work with him effectively. And he and I both do great work around human trafficking prevention. So it's, I recognize this bias and I kind of put that on the back burner and say, Hey, you can't view everybody the way that you have this bias, because if you place that person in this box, you lose the ability to see them for who they actually are. And if I'm not seeing that person as a genuine person, I'm just seeing them as a caricature of the stereotypes that I may have placed on somebody from that background. I can't engage with them. I can only see them for surface. I can only do surface level things. So once we learn to overcome biases that we have, it allows for us to be able to make those connections and open up more to others. When I go into a presentation and say, hey, I have biases that I'm working on. I have biases that I've had to overcome to do this work. You can do it too. It makes it easier for an audience, I feel like, to connect to me because I'm being real and honest with them. I'm not standing up there and saying, I am better than all of you. I have never once in my life done harm. I have never held a bias or a stereotype against somebody else because that's not true. We all have biases. It's, it's actually quite interesting to hear that. And I think that the, that notion of both unlearning bias and working with other people's biases at the same time is one of the challenges of the work we do. And anybody doing any kind of social change work, it's necessary, but also very challenging. Yeah. Because you want to be open to hearing oh, other yeah. people's stuff, right? Without judging at the same time, you're, you know, that that's what you're, you're feeling is really your own bias. It's just, it's really hard to do. So I commend you for doing well, that. Even, well, thank you. It's like, even if we look at doing domestic and sexual violence prevention work specifically, if I'm in an audience trying to do prevention work and I'm talking about uh, rape culture, for example. Mm -hmm. And I have somebody in the audience who says, well, she was asking for it because of what she was wearing. If I become combative against that person, I have lost every possible chance right. to be able to change that person's viewpoint. Right. And I'm also running the risk then of potentially losing people who are on the fence. Yeah. And sure, maybe I can't change that person's viewpoint. But if I can come at it from a place of respect or a place of understanding and trying to redirect 
I at least then don't lose the fence sitters. And yes. if I lose the fence sitters, then I've got a problem. And, and being, and also coming across, and the trick is, and this is the balance, is coming across as being non-judgmental and open to what they have to say and validating them in a way without validating the bias that they're showing. Um, so they feel they're being heard. And once the person feels that they're being heard, then they're more open to hearing you. And that's, that's such a dance. It is such a dance. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's one of the benefits of the identities that I bring to some of the presentations is not, not saying that as a white dude that I should be having all these presentations and all these comments because that is absolutely not true. But it's, I can tell an audience member who says like, oh, well, I've told sexist jokes before or I've laughed at sexist jokes before. That doesn't make me a bad person. Like, I agree 100%. I agree with that because I've told sexist jokes before. I've laughed at sexist jokes before. I've been in your place. I know what you're thinking because I've thought those same thoughts. So it's, I can connect to the people who I want to see that behavior change because I've been there. Sean, you know, one thing I was thinking about as you've been talking and I've been rolling back through our conversations with survivors, there's so many, and I think Claire would agree, who run up against their own oftentimes family member or friend, very close friend, but oftentimes we're talking a family member who simply permanently doesn't want to change their mind to support survivorship. There's blame. And as you're talking about changing people's minds through education, I'm thinking what happens when you, like these survivors themselves, run into someone who just digs in and is is closed-minded you know they i think so many of our survivors say i just don't have a relationship with this person in my family anymore and um, how do you work through that i mean obviously they're not your family necessarily although they could be your family rejects yeah. you doing this work too um, yeah. but what are your thoughts on that situation uh, so one, I would preface all of this by saying that if your family member is a detriment to your mental health or they are not, or that they are just a toxic people or toxic person in your life, you absolutely do not need to maintain a relationship with them if you don't want to. Uh, you don't need to, you don't need to try to appease those people because if they are doing harm to you, you don't need to be around that. Now, if it's something that you, if you want to salvage the relationship or you're ha having these conversations with your friends or other people in the communities, my biggest question is just why why do you think it was her fault because of what she was wearing because it's really easy for us for someone to say well yeah it's her fault because what she was she was wearing revealing clothes but why do you think that because there's always going to be a root for why someone has a specific belief that they have and if i can figure out what that root is i can then figure out how can i twist or redirect that to making it a bit more beneficial. So if someone says like, oh, she was asking for it because she was wearing revealing clothes. Well, why was she, why is she asking for it? And it's like, well, if she didn't, she wants that, she wants attention. I was like, okay, well, why do you think she wants attention by wearing those clothes? Just keep peeling back the layers and eventually you will find something where you're like, okay, I can connect to that part. So if I can address the root belief, 
I've I've unraveled all the other stuff. I'm curious um, if since you do work on um, anti-trafficking work, um, the kind of um, there is a lot of discussion out there in our country right now about rumors and traffickers and how you know who's a trafficker and who's not a trafficker and who's grooming and who's not grooming. And I wonder if you've encountered that work um, and how or that 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 attitude that view and what do you do to how do you confront it uh so one of the things that i make sure i always include in my presentations is people who know you are the most likely people to harm you like if i thinking of this from the mind of a trafficker i can't just kidnap some kid in a walmart parking lot and then force them into sex trafficking that's really difficult for me because i don't know what vulnerabilities they have to trafficking I can't look at somebody and say they fit this social category, this social category, and this social category that are marginalized. Now, maybe you can kind of guess or assume, and some of them are far more visible than others. But people who know us know our vulnerabilities. They know what social boxes that we are in in our community that allow for us to potentially be victims. So, well, yes. There are cases where somebody can be kidnapped and then forced into sex trafficking or labor trafficking. Those are very few and far between. That is a small minority. A majority of victims of trafficking are being trafficked by people who knew them prior to it. Just as a vast majority of sexual assault victims are victims from people who knew them prior to the assault. So it really comes back to that social category discussion that I was having earlier because someone like myself who's a cis straight white dude i don't have a lot of vulnerabilities to trafficking i don't fit into marginalized boxes a trans black woman does and fits in multiple marginalized boxes so they are far more at risk than i am of being a potential victim so we have to look at what we think a victim looks like or why we think that person is the victim that they are and recognize it as probably from movies like Taken <laughs> and address that belief because victims of, like the girl from Taken is not what most trafficking victims look like. Right. My next question, Sean, is about um, how do you invite more men to come to this you know, table, if you will, of prevention education and being part of the solution? That is the uh, the million dollar question because let me tell you, if I had the full answer to that, I would be rich. <laughs> yeah. So we've done a few episodes on our podcast kind of talking about how we can engage men more in violence prevention work. One of the spots that a lot of people end up just defaulting to is question them like, well, what if it was your wife? What if it was your daughter? What if it was your aunt or girlfriend or wife? We'll use men's relationships to women to try to draw them in through the door to start having that conversation with them, which for some people, that's their draw. They care because it's somebody who they care about, which is basically all of us. We don't care about something unless something happens to someone we care about. Now we're all for it. One of the other ways that I've seen it done, and I like it a little bit more, is working with men on our vulnerability pieces or working on helping men have healthier relationships and be vulnerable in those relationships. Because 
it allows them to have discussions around um, masculinity. And if I can educate men on how masculinity, specifically the masculine traits that the patriarchy holds up to be like, you have to be a man to do these things. If I can help them understand that we're being set up, it makes it a lot easier to get them in to have other discussions on things. Is there some sort of motivating factor of self-interest that we could exploit or utilize or um, <laughs> delve into for men? You know, I was almost like, if we could show a connection between, you know, better sex, better love, better, more money, more, I don't know what it could be, you know, <laughs> yeah. between men who, you know, do this work and are more aware. I don't know. What are your thoughts as a man? <laughs> Yeah. So one of the things that I do point out to people, um, so specifically when I tend to have conversations around masculinity, which I absolutely love having those conversations, it's never, I never bring in like masculinity is toxic because there are masculine traits that are great. Um, masculinity becomes a problem or harmful when we only live for those traits. So as a man, if I only ever live to be a really tough, buff, strong dude who has to be dominant, I have to be the breadwinner in my relationships, I'm losing the ability to connect to people in other ways. If I believe that I'm supposed to make more money than my partner in my relationship and they make more money than me, that is now a point of contention in the relationship. So what it ends up being is I can I have those relationship conversations and say, you can be that big, buff, tough, strong dude if you want to. That's perfectly fine. But don't isolate or cut yourself off from the other half of you. Don't only live for those traits. If you want to be them, fine. But open up to those other things. Have a willingness to be a little bit vulnerable because you're going to have better relationships for it. But I think one of the other things that I do try to hit on a lot with the men that I'm having conversations with is it makes our just overall health better. You will feel better when you don't have the pressures of society telling you how you have to be. And it also, you know, helps you live longer because one of the things in order to quote unquote be a man is we can't be emotional. We can't express emotions. We can't cry. But if we allow for men to have those conversations, to be vulnerable, to express other emotions than anger or aggression, we allow for conversations on mental health. And there's a reason that men have higher rates of completed suicide than women. You know, it's interesting that um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Martin, um, who um, is, was a psych professor. A couple of books on men and masculinity. That's his area of study. Exactly about these very issues, various issues. And he does one man, he's also a comedian. So he does a one man show and he talks about that issue of, um, holding on to it's called crimes against nature and the idea that holding on to that masculine ideal whatever that is is killing men you know so how to um how to engage men in the kinds of things that men are raised to do like if you're into football watching this you know 300 pound guy running at you when you and you're supposed to run toward that instead of turning around and running away when you're playing football the kinds of things that would be natural to do you have to go against and and um uh, it's interesting that you're, you know, engaging men in that way. Cause I think that that's really a key piece of this because men, you have to use their self-interest in order to engage them. Oh, in yeah. That may not on its surface seem to be in their best self-interest and having a better life and being happier people 
on being healthier are obviously in their self-interest. So it's interesting you're doing it that way. It is also fun to just ask my audience of men, um, what takes more strength, swimming with the current or swimming against it? Because obviously it takes more strength to physically swim against a current, but it also takes a lot more emotional strength to be able to admit that, hey, maybe maybe we shouldn't be this way. And I'm obviously someone who is never going to fit the full definition of what a quote unquote man is supposed to look like because I'm not big, buff and strong. I dress more fashionably. (laughs) Uh, I clearly don't make a lot of money because I work for a nonprofit, but it's, that's not my definition of being a man. My definition of being a man is being somebody who is willing to help out, who is willing to admit when they're wrong, who is willing to be there and support and help others. Those are traits that we see in masculinity. We have the, I'm, I have that protector trait because it's what I've started to grow up to believe about men. But instead of taking that to the extremes of the negative, I'm seeing, okay, how do I protect my community then to help my community as a whole? And it's worked a lot easier for me. <laughs> Cass, tell us about it. And what were your goals when you set it out, when you set off on this? Yeah. So we created the Such a Subjects podcast um, almost like right before the pandemic happened, not planning to be a pandemic podcast, but kind of worked that way. But really what it ended up being was we wanted to find a way to collaborate with each other. So on the onset of Touchy Subjects, we had three co-hosts, myself and two others, who all worked for different domestic and sexual violence shelters, basically within about a 25, 30 mile radius. So we were like, well, we always work together anyway. Why don't we just make a podcast and have constant collaboration? Not only to show our agencies that we're always working together, but to show our communities that we have this united front and are constantly working towards making all of our communities safer, not just the cities we worked in. Mm-hmm. But that sounds fun. Plus, we all love talking. Um, so it worked out great. <laughs> and the initial, that was one of the kind of the initial part of Touchy Subjects. And the other part was because we all did prevention work around domestic and sexual violence, we wanted to kind of just get that message out to as many people as possible. Um, and that was where we started. And it, please, if anybody is listening and goes to listen to our, some of our episodes, don't listen to like the first four or five. They sound really bad audio quality wise. (laughs) The content, (laughs) great audio quality, not super good because we didn't know what we were doing. Like, I think our first episode is the three of us sitting around one microphone, not knowing that a microphone only comes good from one side. But what it almost ended up evolving into the podcast, the more that we did it, is eventually we started getting people asking to be on our show or wanting to be guests or wanting to interview us. Mm -hmm. And from that, we started realizing that we have, we're making connections to people we never thought we would make connections to. An example that I use this all the time is uh, there was a guy from the UK who is a playwright who created an audio drama and I had never heard of this audio drama. I would have never even thought about it. And he reached out wanting to be on our podcast. I was like, "Ah, sure. Why not? This sounds great. That was over a year ago. And he and I still go back and forth on emails together. I've worked with him to help him develop that radio drama into a stage play. Right. It's making connections to people we never thought we would. And the connections that I have to these people now is really allowing for me to help 
expand um, survivors and victims' voices as well. Because we have a platform now where victims and survivors want to come onto our podcast and share their stories to try to help others. So I just think it's been it's been really cool to see how we're like, we still have a violence piece to it. Like we'll make sure every episode has things that are addressing culture and societal norms to try to change the viewpoints that people have. But it's still, it's evolved into a space where I feel like more survivors are now able to come into it and feel like they're a part of it and they want to be a part of it. And I think that's really cool. Like having a survivor emailing me, telling me that the podcast came out perfect and they loved it and they were so happy they were able to share it with their friends and family to have them hear her story in a way that they haven't heard it before. I'm like, thank you. That means a lot to me. Or hearing somebody who was a listener use our podcasts to help connect to the people that they're working with or helping show survivors that see you're not alone and see there are people out in the communities, in these communities who want to help you. I was like, this is, it's bigger than we thought it would be. And it's connecting and reaching more people than we ever thought, which is great. We kind of figured it would stay like localized to our area. Mm -hmm. And we have listeners in every con- uh, ev- on every continent across the world. So it's been we're, great. We're having that experience too. And it's really cool to think that you're connecting with people you never knew existed and that you're helping someone oh, halfway yeah. around the world or, you know, close by, but that you didn't know they were there, you know? So that's very cool. Mm-hmm. So I think the last um, question I have for you, Sean, is just back to um, not just the work you're doing with your podcast, but, you know, where to from here? Obviously, um, the the bad news, I think, for all of us in this field is it's not, I've been doing this for 30 years. Claire's been doing it for longer, and we're still at it, and it's not necessarily um, going away. So, you know, what's your, do you have any goals or plans or words of advice for others who want to get involved? Yeah. Uh, so if you want to get involved, one, look at what your community is already doing. Cause there's probably somebody in your community who's already doing something and it's a lot easier to tag on to somebody than try to, you know, rebuild the wheel. But I would also say the people who are doing our work, because it can almost feel kind of, I guess, and especially in prevention, in the prevention setting, prevention work in and of itself can feel very unrewarding because, if I was a therapist working with a victim, I can see that victim's growth. I can see where they started from and where they ended up, where now they're like, we don't need to see them every week. They just, they can come in every month and we can chat. So you can see the growth and change in somebody. You can see how you're helping someone. I'm never going to be able to tell you that I have prevented somebody from sexually assaulting somebody else because I will never know that information. So it can feel very uh, unrewarding. So I guess the things that I take from it is that when I do have an audience member come up to me and thank me afterward for the presentation, or if I'm getting that email from someone saying that they used our podcast to help another victim out, I was like, there's there's that reward part, but it's also, that was a victim who was thanking me. That was a survivor who was thanking me. I wasn't able to prevent them from being or experiencing those things. If you want to do this work, you have to understand that it's really good and it's it can be fun at times because I love public speaking, but it can also be really draining because you're not going to go home from work that day saying to yourself, I did amazing work. I helped so many people. 
you can think you helped a lot of people, but unless they actually took that message to heart, didn't happen. So it sounds really like a bleak thing to say to people, but it's when someone is doing prevention work, I feel like you know for sure they want to be there because I can sign up to work for a nonprofit and do prevention work to have a job that's telling me, hey, you'll never know if you prevented the thing you're trying to do or the thing you've dedicated your whole life's work to doing, but you're doing it because you want to. You want to be able to help people. And there's no greater way for me to help people than to try to make sure that they never experience what so many people have experienced. I I like what you said too, Sean, because this is not, you know, I always think of all the superhero movies that are out right now, and they're always swooping in and saving someone in the middle of the crime. And we're not saving someone in the middle of the crime, but we're saving them from years and years of feeling alone and isolated and you know, just sitting in their trauma is I feel the work we do on the Dear Katie podcast. And, and that part's hard because it's not, it's almost like the slow, slow healing of a broken bone from the inside. You don't know, but slowly the pain is dissipating and you're getting stronger. And it's not instantly gratifying like a swipe on a phone for the next TikTok, right? So this is a slow yeah. patient work and it does require um, real deliberate commitment. And so I am so grateful that you're doing this work and that you're, you know, being your own brand of superhero. And um, we're just, you know, want to support you and I hope that our listeners will support your podcast. And, you know, I can't wait to be a guest on yours as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Claire, do you have anything else for Sean today? Yes. No, but thank you for being on our show today and also for the work you're doing and for engaging other men because that's you are far more able to reach out to to certain groups of people than say like the old white non-straight woman that I am has <laughs> been doing this work for a <laughs> long time. And and I and I recognize that and you know at the same time this is the work that men should be doing, right? You know, it's it's that oh, yeah. that thing of I don't wanna, you know, like toot horns for you, but I also want to thank you for the work you're doing because it's really important. I wish more men were engaged. So great that you're doing that. Thank well, you. It's not to take any more of your guys' time for this, but it's it's one of the things that I really had to focus on a lot when I started my job. And it was something that I didn't really fully overcome. And I'm still I still go to bat with it every now and then. But when I started doing this work, I was very cognizant of the identities that I bring to the table. And I'm very cognizant of doing a presentation in front of a room full of people, which if it's a community presentation, you can probably bet it's going to be primarily women. So now it's the straight white dude going up in front of a group of women and saying, this is what we have to do. (laughs) So you can see how in my head that might be like, am I just mansplaining to all of these people (laughs) or am i just overstepping my boundaries or overstepping here um and it was something i battled with a lot sure and i had a guest come onto our podcast and she said to me it's like yeah you're a straight white dude but we need people of all backgrounds to be engaged in this work and be advocate and be loud about it because 
if you're not being loud about it, you're not, you're not helping. You're not doing what you're not doing the best work that you can do. So it's, yes, I recognize I am a straight white dude who fits pretty much checks every box of what white privilege looks like or what the pay, uh, the face of the patriarchy, if you will. Uh, but it's because of those identities, I can still, ho- I can hopefully bring in some people, specifically ones who look like me because we need more of them at the table. But I can recognize that I am a piece of the puzzle and the solution. I'm not coming into that space saying that I am the solution. Well, Katie, um, thank you, Sean, for joining us. And I guess I will sort of wind it out um, and remind our listeners that we appreciate your presence on the podcast and to visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. And you can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to them. And thank you listeners for being present. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thank you so much, Claire. And again, to all of our listeners, thank you for joining another episode of Dear Katie. We hope you will continue to thrive, survive, and tune in to another episode in the next week or two. So thank you and take care. Bye, all.